Chapter Four, Section Two of the History of Mr. Polly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter Four, Section Two, Three. All the preparations for the funeral ran easily and happily under Mrs. Johnson's skilful hands. On the eve of the sad event, she produced a reserve of black sateen the kitchen steps and a box of tin-tacks, and decorated the house with festoons and bows of black in the best possible taste. She tied up the knocker with black crepe, and put a large bow over the corner of the steel engraving of Garibaldi, and swathed the bust of Mr. Gladstone that had belonged to the deceased with inky swathing. She turned the two vases that had views of Tivoli and the Bay of Naples round, so that these rather brilliant landscapes were hidden, and only the plain blue enamel showed, and she anticipated the long-contemplated purchase of a tablecloth for the front room, and substituted a violet-purple cover for the now very worn and faded raptures and roses in plushette that hitherto had done duty there. Everything that loving consideration could do to impart a dignified solemnity to her little home was done. She had released Mr. Polly from the irksome duty of issuing invitations, and as the moments of assembly drew near, she sent him and Mr. Johnson out into the long strip of garden at the back of the house, to be free to put a finishing touch or so to her preparations. She sent them out together because she had a queer little persuasion at the back of her mind that Mr. Polly wanted to bolt from his sacred duties, and there was no way out of the garden except through the house. Mr. Johnson was a steady, successful gardener, and particularly good with celery and peas. He walked slowly along the narrow path down the centre, pointing out to Mr. Polly a number of interesting points in the management of peas, wrinkles neatly applied, and difficulties wisely overcome, and all that he did for the comfort and appropriation of that fitful but rewarding vegetable. Presently a sound of nervous laughter and raised voices from the house proclaimed the arrival of the earlier guests and the worst of that anticipatory tension was over. When Mr. Polly re-entered the house he found three entirely strange young women with pink faces, demonstrative manners, and empathic mourning, engaged in an incoherent conversation with Mrs. Johnson. All three kissed him with great gusto, after the ancient English fashion. Are these are your cousins, Larkins?' said Mrs. Johnson. That's Annie. Unexpected hug and smack. That's Miriam. Resolute hug and smack. And that's Minnie. Prolonged hug and smack. Right ho, said Mr. Polly, emerging a little crumpled and breathless from this hearty introduction. I see. Here's Aunt Larkins, said Mrs. Johnson as an elderly and stouter edition of the three young women appeared in the doorway. 
Mr. Polly backed rather faint-heartedly, but Aunt Larkins was not to be denied. Having hugged and kissed her nephew resoundingly, she gripped him by the wrists and scanned his features. She had a round, sentimental, freckled face. "'I should have known him anywhere,' she said with fervour. "'Hark a mother!' said the cousin called Annie. "'Why, she's never set eyes on him before.' "'I should have known him anywhere,' said Mrs. Larkins, "'for Lizzie's child. You've got her eyes. It's a resemblance. And as for never seeing him, I've dandled him. Miss Imperance, I've dandled him.' "'You couldn't dandle him now, Ma,' Miss Annie remarked with a shriek of laughter. All the sisters laughed at that. "'Oh, the things you say, Annie,' said Miriam and for a time the room was full of mirth. Mr. Polly felt it incumbent upon him to say something. "'My dandling days are over,' he said. The reception of this remark could have convinced a far more modest character than Mr. Polly that it was extremely witty. Mr. Polly followed it up by another one almost equally good. "'My turn to dandle!' <laughs> he said with a sly look at his aunt, and convulsed every one. "'Not me,' said Mrs. Larkins, taking his point. "'Thank you,' and achieved a climax. It was queer, but they seemed to be easy people to get on with anyhow. They were still picking little ripples and giggles of mirth from the idea of Mr. Polly dandling Aunt Larkins, where Mr. Johnson, who had answered the door, ushered in a stooping figure, who was at once hailed by Mrs. Johnson as, "'Why, Uncle Penstemon!' Uncle Penstemon was rather a shock. He was an aged rather than venerable figure. Time had removed the hair from the top of his head, and distributed a small dividend of the plunder in little bunches, carelessly and impartially, over the rest of his features. He was dressed in a very big old frock-coat, and a long cylindrical top-hat, which he kept on. He was very much bent, and he carried a rush-basket, from which protruded coy imitations of the lettuces and onions he had brought to grace the occasion. He hobbled into the room, resisting the efforts of Johnson to divest himself of his various encumbrances, halted, and surveyed the company with an expression of profound hostility, breathing hard. Recognition quickened in his eyes. "'You here?' he said to Aunt Larkins, and then, "'You would be. Those your gals?' "'They are,' said Aunt Larkins. "'And better gals?' "'That Annie?' asked Uncle Penstemon, pointing a horny thumbnail. "'Fancy your remembering her name.' "'She mucked up my mushroom-bed, the baggage,' said Uncle Penstemon ungenially, "'and I give it to her to rights. Trounced her I did, fairly. I remember her. Here's some green stuff for you, Grace. Fresh it is, and wholesome. I shall be wanting the basket back, and mind you let me have it. Have you nailed him down yet?' You always was a bit in front of what was needful. 
His attention was drawn inward by a troublesome tooth, and he sucked at it spitefully. There was something potent about this old man that silenced everyone for a moment or two. He seemed a fragment from the ruder agricultural past of our race, like a lump of soil among things of paper. He put his basket of vegetables very deliberately on the new violet tablecloth, removed his hat carefully, and dabbled his brow, and wiped out his hat-brim with a crimson and yellow pocket-handkerchief. "'I'm glad you were able to come, Uncle,' said Mrs. Johnson. "'Oh, I came,' said Uncle Penstemon. "'I came.' He turned on Mrs. Larkins. "'Gals in service?' he asked. "'They aren't, and they won't be,' said Mrs. Larkins. "'No,' he said with infinite meaning, and turned his eye on Mr. Polly. "'You Lizzie's boy,' he said. Mr. Polly was spared much self-exposition by the tumult occasioned by further arrivals. "'Oh, here's May Punt,' said Mrs. Johnson, and a small woman dressed in the borrowed mourning of a large woman, and leading a very small, long-haired, observant little boy, it was his first funeral, appeared, closely followed by several friends of Mrs. Johnson, who had come to swell the display of respect, and made only vague, confused impressions upon Mr. Polly's mind. Aunt Mildred, who was an unexpected family scandal, had declined Mrs. Johnson's hospitality. Everyone was in profound mourning, of course, mourning in the modern English style, with the dyer's handiwork only too apparent, with hats and jackets of the current cut. There was very little crape, and the costumes had none of the goodness and specialization and genuine enjoyment of mourning for mourning's sake that a similar continental gathering would have displayed. Still, that congestion of strangers in black sufficed to stun and confuse Mr. Polly's impressionable mind. It seemed to him much more extraordinary than anything he had expected. "'Now, gals,' said Mrs. Larkins, "'see if you can help.' And the three daughters became confusingly active between the front room and the back. "'I hope everyone will take a glass of sherry and a biscuit.' said Mrs. Johnson, we don't stand on ceremony, and a decanter appeared in the place of Uncle Penstemon's vegetables. Uncle Penstemon had refused to be relieved of his hat. He sat stiffly down on a chair against the wall with that venerable headdress between his feet, watching the approach of anyone jealously. "'Don't you go squashing my hat,' he said. Conversation became confused and general. Uncle Penstemon addressed himself to Mr. Polly. "'You're a little chap,' he said, "'a puny little chap. I never did agree to Lizzie marrying him, but I suppose bygones must be bygones now. I suppose they made you into a clerk or something.' "'Outfitter,' said Mr. Polly. "'I remember.' them girls pretend to be dressmakers they are dressmakers 
said Mrs. Larkins across the room. "'I will take a glass of sherry. They hold to it, you see.' He took the glass Mrs. Johnson handed him, and poised it critically between a horny finger and thumb. "'You'll be paying for this,' he said to Mr. Polly. "'Here's to you. Don't you go treading on my hat, young woman. You brush your skirts against it, and take a shilling off its value. It ain't the sort of hat you see nowadays.' He drank noisily. The sherry presently loosened everybody's tongue, and the early coldness passed. "'There ought to have been a post-mortem,' Polly heard Mrs. Punt remarking to one of Mrs. Johnson's friends, and Miriam and another were lost in admiration of Mrs. Johnson's decorations. "'So very nice and refined,' they were both repeating at intervals. The sherry and biscuits were still being discussed when Mr. Podger, the undertaker, arrived, a broad, cheerfully sorrowful, clean-shaven little man, accompanied by a melancholy-faced assistant. He conversed for a time with Johnson in the passage outside. The sense of his business stilled the rising waves of chatter and carried off everyone's attention in the wake of his heavy footsteps to the room above. 4. Things crowded upon Mr. Polly. Everyone, he noticed, took sherry with a solemn avidity, and a small portion even was administered sacramentally to the punt-boy. There followed a distribution of black kid gloves, and much trying on and humouring of fingers. "'Good gloves,' said one of Mrs. Johnson's friends. "'There's a little pair there for Willie,' said Mrs. Johnson triumphantly. Everyone seemed gravely content with the amazing procedure of the occasion. Presently Mr. Podger was picking out Mr. Polly as chief mourner to go with Mrs. Johnson, Mrs. Larkins, and Annie in the first mourning carriage. "'Right-o,' said Mr. Polly, and repented instantly of the alacrity of the phrase. "'There'll have to be a walking party,' said Mrs. Johnson cheerfully. There's only two coaches. I dare say we can put six in each, but that leaves three over." There was a general struggle to be a pedestrian, and the two other Larkins girls, confessing coyly to tight new boots and displaying a certain eagerness, were added to the contents of the first carriage. "'It'll be a squeeze,' said Annie. "'I don't mind a squeeze,' said Mr. Polly. He decided privately that the proper phrase for the result of that remark was hysterical catunations. Mr. Podger re-entered the room from a momentary supervision of the bumping business that was now proceeding down the staircase. "'Bearing up,' he said cheerfully, rubbing his hands together, "'bearing up.' That struck very vividly in Mr. Polly's mind, and so did the close-wedged drive to the churchyard bunched in between two young women in confused dull and shiny black, and the fact that the wind was bleak and the officiating clergyman had a cold and sniffed between his sentences. The wonder of life, the wonder of everything! What had he expected, that this should all be so astoundingly different? 
he found his attention converging more and more upon the Larkins' cousins. The interest was reciprocal. They watched him with a kind of suppressed excitement, and became risable with his every word and gesture. He was more and more aware of their personal quality. Annie had blue eyes and a red, attractive mouth, a harsh voice, and a habit of extreme liveliness that even this occasion could not suppress. Minnie was fond, extremely free about the touching of hands and such-like endearments. Miriam was quieter, and regarded him earnestly. Mrs. Larkins was very happy in her daughters, and they had the naive affectionateness of those who see few people and find a strange cousin a wonderful outlet. Mr. Polly had never been very much kissed, and it made his mind swim. He did not know for the life of him whether he liked or disliked all or any of the Larkins' cousins. It was rather attractive to make them laugh. They laughed at anything. There they were, tugging at his mind, and the funeral tugging at his mind too, and the sense of himself as chief mourner in a brand-new silk hat with a broad mourning-band. He watched the ceremony, and missed his responses, and strange feelings twisted at his heart-strings. 5. Mr. Polly walked back to the house because he wanted to be alone. Miriam and Minnie would have accompanied him, but finding Uncle Penstemon beside the chief mourner, they went on in front. "'You're wise,' said Uncle Penstemon. "'Glad you think so,' said Mr. Polly, rousing himself to talk. "'I like a bit of walking before a meal,' said Uncle Penstemon, and made a kind of large hiccup. "'That sherry rises,' he remarked. "'Grocer's stuff, I expect.' He went on to ask how much the funeral might be costing and seemed pleased to find that Mr. Polly didn't know. "'In that case,' he said impressively, "'it's pretty certain to cost more than you expect, my boy.' He meditated for a while. "'I've seen a mort of undertakers,' he declared. "'A mort of undertakers.' The Larkins girls attracted his attention. Let's lodgings and chars, he commented. Leastways she goes out to cook dinners, and look at em, dressed up to the nines, if it ain't borrowed clothes, that is, and they goes to work at a factory. Uh, did you know my father much, Uncle Penstemon? asked Mr. Polly. "'Couldn't stand Lizzie throwing herself away like that,' said Uncle Penstemon, and repeated his hiccup on a larger scale. "'That weren't good sherry,' said Uncle Penstemon, with the first note of pathos Mr. Polly had detected in his quavering voice. The funeral in the rather cold wind had proved wonderfully appetising and every eye brightened at the sight of the cold collation that was now spread in the front room. 
Mrs. Johnson was very brisk, and Mr. Polly, when he re-entered the house, found everyone sitting down. "'Come along, Alfred,' cried the hostess cheerfully. "'We can't very well begin without you. Have you got the bottled beer ready to open, Betsy? Uncle, you'll have a drop of whisky, I expect.' "'Put it where I can mix it for myself,' said Uncle Penstemon, placing his hat very carefully out of harm's way on the bookcase. There were two cold boiled chickens, which Johnson carved with great care and justice, and a nice piece of ham, some brawn and a steak and kidney pie, a large bowl of salad, and several sorts of pickles, and afterwards came cold apple tart, jam roll, and a good piece of Stilton cheese, lots of bottled beer, some lemonade for the ladies, and milk for Master Punt. A very bright and satisfying meal. Mr. Polly found himself seated between Mrs. Punt, who was very much preoccupied with Master Punt's table manners, and one of Mrs. Johnson's schooled friends, who was exchanging reminiscences of school days, and news of how various common friends had changed and married with Mrs. Johnson. Opposite him was Miriam, and another of the Johnson circle, and also he had brawn to carve, and there was hardly room for the helpful Betsy to pass behind his chair, so that altogether his mind would have been amply distracted from any mortuary broodings, even if a wordy warfare about the education of the modern young woman had not sprung up between Uncle Penstemon and Mrs. Larkins, and threatened for a time in spite of a word or so in season from Johnson, to wreck all the harmony of the sad occasion. The general effect was after this fashion. First an impression of Mrs. Punt on the right, speaking in a refined undertone. "'You didn't, I suppose, Mr. Polly, think to have your poor father post-mortemed?' Lady on the left side breaking in. I was just reminding Grace of the dear dead days beyond recall. Attempted reply to Mrs. Punt. I didn't think of it for a moment. Uh, can't I give you a piece of this brawn, can I? Fragment from the left. Grace and beauty, they used to call us, and we used to sit at the same desk. Mrs. Punt, breaking out suddenly. Don't swallow your fork, Willie. You see, Mr. Polly, I used to have a young gentleman, a medical student, lodging with me. Voice from down the table. Am, Alfred, I didn't give you very much. Bessie became evident at the back of Mr. Polly's chair, struggling wildly to get past. Mr. Polly did his best to be helpful. Can you get past? Let me sit forward a bit. Right-o. Lady to the left going on valiantly, and speaking to everyone who cares to listen, while Mrs. Johnson beams beside her. There she used to sit, as bold as brass, and the fun she used to make of things no one could believe, knowing her now. She used to make faces at the mistress through the— Mrs. Punt keeping steadily on. The content of the stomach at any rate ought to be examined voice of mr johnson alfred uh, pass the mustard down 
Miriam, leaning across the table. Ilfrid! Once she got us all kept in, the whole school. Miriam, more insistently, Ilfrid! Uncle Penstemon, raising his voice defiantly, Trounce her again, I would, if she did as much now, that I would, dratted mischief. Miriam, catching Mr. Polly's eyes, Ilfrid, this lady knows Canterbury. I've been telling her you've been there. Mr. Polly, uh, glad you know it. The lady, shouting, I like it. Mrs. Larkins, raising her voice, I won't have my girl spoken of, not by nobody, old or young. Pop, imperfectly located. Mr. Johnson, at large, Ain't the beer up. It's the eated room. Bessie. Excuse me, sir, passing so soon again, but... Rest inaudible, Mr. Polly accommodating himself. Ooh, uh, right, right-o. The knives and forks, probably by some secret common agreement, clash and clatter together and drown every other sound. Nobody had the least idea how he died. Nobody. Willie, don't gollop so. You ain't in a hurry, are you? You don't want to catch a train or anything gollopin' like that. Do you remember, Grace, how one day we had writing lesson? Nicer girls no one ever had, though I say it who shouldn't. Mrs. Johnson, in a shrill, clear, hospitable voice. Harold, won't Mrs. Larkins have a teeny bit more fowl? Mr. Polly, rising to the situation, or some brawn, Mrs. Larkins? Catching Uncle Penstemon's eye, can't send you some brawn, sir. Alfred! Loud hiccup from Uncle Penstemon, momentary consternation, followed by a giggle from Annie. The narration at Mr. Polly's elbow pursued a quiet but relentless course. Directly the new doctor came in, he said, Everything must be took out and put in spirits. Everything. Willie. Audible ingurgitation. The narration on the left was flourishing up to a climax. Ladies, she says, dip their pens in their ink and keep their noses out of it. Alfred. Persuasively. Certain people may cast snacks at other people's daughters, never having had any of their own, though two poor souls of wives dead and buried through their goings-on. Johnson ruling the storm. We don't want old scores dug up on such a day as this. Old scores you may call them, but worth a dozen of them that put them to their rest, poor dears. Alfred, with a note of remonstrance, if you choke yourself, my lord, not another mouthful do you have. No nice pudding, nothing. And she kept us in, she did, every afternoon for a week. It seemed to be the end, and Mr. Polly replied with an air of being profoundly impressed. Uh, really? Alfred, a little disheartened. And then they had it. They found he'd swallowed the very key to unlock the drawer. 
then don't let people go casting snacks who's casting snacks elfrid this lady wants to know have the prossers left canterbury no wish to make myself disagreeable not to god's umplest worm alf you aren't very busy with that brawn up there and so on for the hour the general effect on mr polly at the time was at once confusing and exhilarating but it led him to eat copiously and carelessly and long before the end when after an hour and a quarter a movement took the party and it pushed away its cheese-plate and rose sighing and stretching from the remnants of the repast little streaks and bands of dyspeptic irritation and melancholy were darkening the serenity of his mind he stood between the mantel-shelf and the window the blinds were up now and the larkin sisters clustered about him he battled with the oncoming depression and forced himself to be extremely facetious about two noticeable rings on annie's hand they ain't real said annie coquettishly got em out of a prize packet prize packet in trousers i expect <laughs> said mr polly and awakened indistinguishable laughter oh the things you say said minnie slapping his shoulder suddenly something he had quite extraordinarily forgotten came into his head bless my heart he cried suddenly serious what's the matter asked johnson ought to have gone back to the shop three days ago they'll make no end of a row law you are a treat said cousin annie and screamed with laughter at a delicious idea you'll get the chuck she said mr polly made a convulsing grimace at her i'll die she said i don't believe you care a bit feeling a little disorganized by her hilarity and a shocked expression that had come into the face of cousin miriam he made some indistinct excuse and went out through the back door and scullery into the little garden the cool air and a very slight drizzle of rain was a relief anyhow but the black mood of the replete dyspeptic had come upon him his soul darkened hopelessly he walked with his hands in his pockets down the paths between the rows of exceptionally cultured peas and unreasonably overwhelmingly he was smitten by sorrow for his father the heady noise and muddle and confused excitement of the feast passed from him like a curtain drawn away he thought of that hot and angry and struggling creature who had tugged and sworn so foolishly at the sofa upon the twisted staircase and who was now lying still and hidden at the bottom of a wall-sided oblong pit beside the heaped gravel that would presently cover him the stillness of it the wonder of it the infinite reproach hatred for all these people all of them possessed mr polly's soul hen-witted gigglers said mr polly he went down to the fence and stood with his hands on it staring away at nothing he stayed there for what seemed a long time 
From the house came a sound of raised voices that subsided, and then Mrs. Johnson calling for Bessie. "'Ghoulish gusto,' said Mr. Polly. "'Jumping it in. Funereal games. Don't hurt him, of course. Doesn't matter to him.' Nobody missed Mr. Polly for a long time. When at last he reappeared among them, his eye was almost grim, but nobody noticed his eye. They were looking at watches, and Johnson was being omniscient about trains. They seemed to discover Mr. Polly afresh just at the moment of parting, and said a number of more or less appropriate things. But Uncle Penstemon was far too worried about his rush basket, which had been carelessly mislaid, he seemed to think with larcenous intentions, to remember Mr. Polly at all. Mrs. Johnson had tried to fob him off with a similar but inferior basket. His own had one handle mended with string, according to a method of particular virtue and inimitable distinction known only to himself and the old gentleman had taken her attempt as the gravest reflection upon his years and intelligence. Mr. Polly was left very largely to the Larkins trio. Cousin Minnie became shameless, and kept kissing him good-bye, and then finding out it wasn't time to go. Cousin Miriam seemed to think her silly, and caught Mr. Polly's eye sympathetically. Cousin Annie ceased to giggle, and lapsed into a nearly sentimental state. She said with real feeling that she had enjoyed the funeral more than words could tell. End of chapter 4